1: Hi there. My name is Tom Stamager. I am the co-owner of a film production company in Palm Springs, California named Pollen Path Entertainment. I'm probably best known for the fact that I can't keep focus in career. So uh, if you were born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, you know me as a print model from Kohl's department stores or voiceover artist for most of the, the radio stations in town. Uh, if you happen to be a uh, tourist of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, you know my men's clothing store from Provincetown, Massachusetts. Uh, if you're a Broadway person, I have produced or directed most folks and appeared in four Broadway benefit shows. And uh, since moving to California three years ago, I have started into the film world. So uh, three feature films. One has been picked up for a distribution called Nephilim and just finished uh, the very first feature film called Captive, Last month, we filmed it, and it's now in post-production. So hopefully you'll know me soon Best for that.
0: Tom Stamager, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor. Oh, the honor is all mine. And I, I want to start with just giving a little bit of uh, additional background on you. Uh, I thought the way you put it was very... Uh, eloquent and informal. I might formalize it a little bit here. You are the co-founder of Paul and Path Entertainment, a film and theater company out of California. And the official bio, now you can tell me if the internet is wrong and we need to update (laughs) some of this stuff, but uh, I'll I'll read from it here. Uh, Tom Stamiger, is a strategic thinker with over 30 years of business analysis and management experience, having directed large scale multi million dollar corporate programs with roll- rollouts worldwide. He has also previously owned and operated two successful small businesses Stepping Out Productions, a Milwaukee and Chicago area professional theater company, and Urban Man Made, a New York City and Provincetown men's clothing and accessory store. As an actor and director, Tom has worked with theaters around the country, including four appearances on Broadway stages, and directed Paul and Path Entertainment's last short film, Bunker. So there you go. Uh,
1: that, that, would, that would be me. I sound so impressive for having not really done much.
0: <laughs> I, think <you've> done, <laughs> I think you've done quite a bit, and I think the bio sort of speaks to it. And so I kind of I want to start there uh, with... Uh, this new move, somewhat new move to Pollen Path. You guys are wasting no time at all. You have a co-founder named Cody Frank. What was it about your initial interaction with Cody that made you want to go into business with him?
1: It was totally, totally, totally by chance, and 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 he sort of manipulated something in the background, not knowing me, and me not knowing him. I came from a, from a long theater background, and I moved to California a couple of years ago. And I uh, tried to reach out to the theater community here. There's really only one sort of major equity theater company. And so I went to go um, interview and, and audition for them and did some readings for them. And part of the reason they ended up casting me was they wanted to film some of them, trying to sort of expand the, the breadth of their business a little bit. And so, so we did the readings. They went well. They picked something to film. And just before the, the filming started... They, they called me up and said, hey we want you to come in and, and uh, screen with someone we're going to change the the um, lead character opposite you it was, it was a, a gay short film so it was a gay short uh, story and, and this is a gay love interest was going to be switched to, to someone else and so everybody i'm I'm 50 something 58 years old I said a birthday I have to count again um, and everyone is <laughs> sort of my age or older in, in the readings as as much of Palm Springs is. And so I went into the, the audition to screen with this new actor and walked in. And there was this very beautiful, straight, 27-year-old, blonde punk. And I'm like, that's a wonderful choice. If you think for any reason that works for me, we don't even need to screen. I'm good. <laughs> um, and so we ended up doing the, the film together. And, and oddly, you know, younger, older, gay, straight, whatever, um, very different backgrounds, um, East Coast, West Coast we instantly became best friends from that experience. And he had already started into the film world. I had never really imagined myself in, in film at all. I was, I was business and, and theater. But when I moved to California, I realized most people can't spell theater and aren't really particularly interested in it. It's all film, television, reality show, documentary. And I'm like, hey, you know, what the heck? This sounds, you know, it's, it's artsy if it's not going to be theater. At least it's, it's something like it. And it's um, certainly much more potentially lucrative than theater is. And so, um, Cody and I started talking about, um, you know, the the sort of odd friendship that we had we had formed, and and more importantly, sort of his track down the the business side and how I could support that. He didn't have much of a business background. I've had a long business background, and um, we decided that that we would try doing it, and, and not really knowing what that meant whole a whole lot. He had done several short films. One he produced, um, produced and wrote himself several others that he was hired to act in. But this would be the first time for him sort of running a, a company and first time for me really in film. So we thought, well, it's a, it's a good marriage of skill sets. So let's try it. And so we, we opened uh, almost two years ago now. In the first year, we set out to do short films to sort of get our feet wet and see what uh, what that was all about and what we could learn and, and sort of get our, our, um, our, our mojo down and how to do it. And then we made three and, uh, and they, they did the, the film festival circuit and all that kind of thing. One of them did get picked up for distribution, which is great. And then um, we got ready for our first feature film. And we had sort of by chance struck a deal with a, a sort of major um, player in, in Hollywood, or from one of the major studios, and spent nine months working on that film. And then um, the, the rights to it got pulled. So that didn't really happen. So we set off on our own to, to find something and put a request out for film scripts, and um, particularly in researching for, for feature films, it seemed like the most likely to make money and be the easiest to sell and not super expensive to make for an indie filmmaker just getting started were horror films. Um, it seemed 37% of films only ever make money, but over 60% of horror films do. We said, okay, first off, above anything else, we, we use the term, a friend of mine wrote a song, and in this, it's a lyric from the song saying the business of art talking about, about film and, and actors and, and the whole the whole film industry. Right. At, at the end of the day, it's still the business of business. And it's, the, it's just the business of art. And so it, it needs to make money. And so we're like, well, let's, let's make a film first that might make some money, and then we can make anything we want eventually after that. So we put a request out for, for scripts on a screenwriting site, got 150 of them submitted, and, uh, and picked one. Totally by chance, it happened to be a writer who submitted one for the last short film that we did, Bunker, that I directed and Cody starred in. That same writer submitted the one that we picked for our feature film. And so we set all out to make that around March, April this year, which happens to be right at the kickoff of COVID. Um, so probably the not the best time in the world to be trying to make your first feature film. Mm-hmm. And um, but we we got there. It was fits and starts. You know, we 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 knew right as we were going to go. We couldn't Uh, It looked like things were going to open up in July. And that's when that when the second big wave of of cases hit. So we went to New Mexico where we're going to film in Albuquerque uh, for a couple of weeks, get everything ready and then got shut down and had to return home without having made anything and then got to go back in October. And that time it did open up. And uh, with all the film industry COVID protocols in place, we've thankfully uh, finished filming it when no one got sick and it is now uh, in post-production.
0: So I want to jump in here. We are going to talk about Captive. (laughs) We have to (laughs) talk about Captive. We're going to talk about it a lot. But I want to go back a little bit. You you obviously sort of had that moment with Cody on set that got you into Paul and Path. But what was the moment that jumps out to you in your mind that you knew you wanted to pursue a creative life in theater and film?
1: Uh, in my great, uh, grade school and middle school, middle school, you had to be in choir or orchestra, uh, and in, in my school system and I didn't play any musical instruments. So that meant choir. Um, and then by the time you got to high school, the choir had to be in the musical, uh, for part of your grade. And they brought in somebody into my school to direct and, and choreograph the musicals who had a dance studio. Right at that time, Peter Martins became the, the, uh, the ballet star for New York City Ballet. He was the very first tall male ballet star. I had no dance skills whatsoever, but I was tall. And so <laughs> I was recruited to be uh, Milwaukee Ballet's uh, future ballet star because I was tall. Um, that didn't go particularly well because I still wasn't talented and, but I, I hurt a knee and that wiped me out of that and got me into to theater and musical theater so I was in my college the only computer programming uh, major dance minor
0: <laughs> How tall are you Tom? Six two okay got it all right go 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 ahead I'm sorry I had to um,
1: and so I, I was coordinated I played sports I played basketball I played volleyball I played tennis through through high school and some of it through college and um, and so I, I could do a fair amount but but I, I didn't start early enough to really be a, a great ba- um, ballet person but that translated well to musical theater actually that dance I, I could do and I could sing well enough and I could act well enough uh, to get onto the stage for 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 that. And really, really, really liked it. Um, coming out of college, I actually met um, somebody who became um, my, my wife and, and my, my son's mother eventually, who was also a theater major. And we met in an audition and, um, and sort of hit it off. And, and so theater became part of my life pretty much year-round after that. I would have day jobs to, to pay bills. But uh, right out of college, I started in theater year-round year and, and did it for, gosh, probably 20 years. <laughs> Uh, until that, that marriage ended and I needed to make some money and jump back into the business world more more full time and uh, I started a project now 15 years ago that was gonna be 6 to 12 months and it's now in year 15 and um, it, it's it's been it's been good it's 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 allowed me to do and live wherever I want to sort of do side projects whenever I want and still have something to fall back on as a safety net so that that's been fantastic.
0: I love that. And, and a lot of people are doing that it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, um, I heard you say you and Cody talk about an early experience that you had, because you'd mentioned in your initial sort of opening answer to to my first question about getting your feet wet, making shorts. And I think that's kind of the path that a lot of filmmakers will take when they get started. I think there are obvious reasons why. But I did hear on a podcast conversation uh, you and Cody had, uh, um, I'm forgetting the name of the podcast and my apologies, but you talked about overspending on film festival submissions. What do you think is the right goal for making a short film?
1: Well, it's 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 interesting, and because um, you know, this is all new for me, and and you know, I'm I'm a, I like to research and really understand the the business side of things, and so I sort of assumed just from what I knew from from the the fan side of things, is that you try to get into certain film festivals, we all know the name of, of some of them, whether it you know it's Cannes or Sundance or Tribeca or, or you know South by or something that that we know the names of some of these festivals, and that's sort of the the, the way to go. But then that wasn't really the, the short film festival world. And as, as Cody had already started down that one a little bit, because he had made one film before we met, and that had played a bunch of film festivals. And um, I said, okay, that, that's the goal. The goal is to get into all of those film festivals. And from that, you'll get discovered, and people will learn of you, and they'll like your work, and, that, and then you have a portfolio to show investors. And that was, that was the great way to go. And our experience turned out not to be that. Um, really, the only people at short film festivals were the filmmakers who also were having their film screened in the festival. And so you met other filmmakers who, like you, were trying to make it and be noticed, but were all the same people, all trying to be noticed by people who weren't there. <laughs> and so for, for us, for short films, it really became a chance to to learn the medium and to have a portfolio. Uh, definitely to be able to show some people to say, show us some of your work. So as we go to investors now to look to, for money for, for feature films, at least you have something to show them to say we can do something. But our, our our lesson very quickly was to get out of that world as fast as possible. The, that was a place that you got laurels and you, you got attaboys and you got things to put on your website, but there, were, there was no money in that. And and by and large, the the, the people that we wanted to be meeting weren't there. And that was very different than we expected it to be. And uh, the d- director that we were, were going to work on with, with Captive was was really still of that mindset. The whole thing was to make a film so it got into a festival. And if you got into a festival, you were successful. And I'm like, mm, you know, back to back to business of art. No, success is that it makes money. And it doesn't make money at a film festival. It makes money get distributed and getting the same whether in the theater or whether online the goal is to get it sold and to make money, not, not to get a Laurel from a film festival. I think as we progress and we make, 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 make films, um, you're like a parasite or something that, that really wants to be seen. Mm-hmm. I think certainly that is absolutely the goal to get to those and have a film that, that gets bought. But from the sales agents that we've talked to outside of maybe five or six in the world, the rest of them are, are not really anything that they attend.
0: Yeah, it's really the truth. Um, I've I've often thought that starting to change my my thinking on it a little bit. It's sort of matured over time. I think originally I thought, well, you can probably make money on a short film as long as you spend no more than two thousand dollars on it, and you're a patient man or woman. <laughs> and, and now I'm starting to think, well, you know, maybe a short should be a lost leader, where you're making shorts that could be feature films. Um, you know, very similar to uh Nephilim um uh, that, that you mentioned you know earlier uh you talked about having to also sort of go out and find screenplays find scripts I know you've worked with Travis Cepala a couple of times he wrote Bunker he wrote Captive um how do you assess whether or not a screenplay is good it's a little
1: bit of a learning process for me just from the budget's sake so luckily for for me in theater Um, My theater company was really one that either wanted to do a show that had never been done before or one that had sort of flopped and wanted a second chance. And so for me, even in that world, it was all about really reading a property and seeing if I thought it had viability on stage. And so from a screenwriting analysis or from at least from a script analysis space, I, I felt that that was something I at least had a lot of experience in. And, and Cody and I uh, have, a, have a very similar mindset in that. When we read something, 99% of the time, we're going to either react to it that we like it in the same scripts and not in others. Every once in a while, there might be something that we don't, don't see the same, but by and large, we do. But from there, then it's really saying, okay, what space is this supposed to be in? We have sort of a, a five-film business plan currently, and each one is to check a box. And so as, as we're starting with captive or the first feature, it's like, all right, what, what box is that meant to check First is supposed to be the first one, but also to, to be low budget. And to say that um, we wanted to, to not spend a ton of money so we're not super, super at risk right off the bat, that it would be a little bit challenging to, to raise money for a first feature when, when we don't have experience in the industry, for one, so we're only going to raise so much money. But then also we want to be very protective of any investor dollars that we get. So we only want to spend so much money on the backside to be able to, to sell it for a profit and return return the investment. And so the, the script first off has to reach us as something that we we're we interested in, in producing. And whether that means that we we react well to the story for some particular reason, or there there's good parts for us, or it's something that, that one of us might want to direct. What is our particular interest could be varied but at the end of the day, it has to be something we feel is going to make money. Mm. And so is there a built-in audience who wants to see this film? Is there some twist that makes it different than every other film that's already out there? And By and large, you know, most everything is, has been done, and, and so you're you're you know recreating the, a wheel. But in some different way, is there something when, when there's so many things to click on on uh, Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and every other source that we have for, for information and, and entertainment these days? Is there some reason somebody's going to stop and click on that to watch
0: it? Right. And you have this you have this background in business. And I think that over time, we've developed a very strong sort of no mercenaries opinion, but it doesn't mean that that's right for everybody. And I've seen you work with Travis Sepala uh, uh, a couple of times. I'm, I'm wondering, you also worked with other writers and other directors. So I'm, I'm wondering, if, from your business mind, is it easier to invest in the same writer or is it better to diversify?
1: I think it's always better to diversify some um, in that certainly there's a comfort with somebody that you know and you get into a flow of, of how to do things because as, as much as every writer probably thinks they submit the perfect script and it needs not even a single comma edited, the, the people on the other side who are reading it probably think it needs some commas edited. And so mm-hmm. one has to get into a flow of, of, of same mindset, you know, will somebody be willing to have something modified uh, right. or are they very protective of, of their work? And so you had, it, it's um, it's a partnership. We took a class Cody and I last year um, here for, through a, a woman in film organization. And the, the, the main phrase that came from that from the panelists were we find your tribe that there are a gazillion people working in this industry and, but there, that means there's a lot of personalities and, and, you know, like everyone, we, all of us have strengths and weaknesses and we have ways that are comfort zones for us, personality wise, work wise. And so, you know, each, if you work one way, and it's very successful for you. It doesn't mean it's the only way, but it means it's your comfort zone way. And so, especially as you're new, it's just a little easier to work in your comfort zone, at least for, for, for myself and for Cody. And so it's about finding your tribe who works that way. So one respect of, of working with Travis more than once is is that we did have a similar mindset in, in a very easy working relationship. Um, but when we got in, into captive, the the first director who was going to be on the film had never directed anything that he had not written before, and so he wanted to change everything. And, and Travis wasn't open to to that, and contractually we couldn't do that, and so that that got into to some conflict um, as far as as far as that goes. But that means that also you can't rely on one person only. You know, they're, they're going to write only so many things and only so many of those things are you going to have the, the emotional reaction to that you want to produce. And at least for us, um, you know, horror is where we're starting, but it doesn't necessarily mean where we want to end. And so if we got horror writers only, that would limit us to, to one particular kind of thing. And so we, we definitely want to have a, a variety of people. Of the 150 scripts we got the first go-round, and some people submitted multiple scripts. We probably had 100 different writers. And I'd say there are probably I don't know, 20 scripts that we really, really liked. Most of them were too expensive to produce as the first box. It didn't mean that, that they weren't worthy of being produced. It just meant for what we were trying for this first go-round, it wasn't
0: it. Right. And... I really like this thought of like find your tribe. So I hear about, I hear what you're saying about diversity and diversification because there is a moment where you kind of need to do that so that you can level up and grow. But then this thing about tribe as well is so important. And you kind of have to have outside of film experiences with the people that are in your closest circle, that sort of inner circle of trust the four or five people that are actually going to make the, you know, the film happen. Uh, We have a, had a producer tell us a story about a guy who was great. Um, Everything was going well. Pre-production was great. (laughs) And then when he got on set, his personality completely changed and it really hurt the film. And there's no way that they could have known that except to have had sort of outside interactions with that person and caught him actually being himself instead of the trained version that he had learned to be to sort of get the work.
1: Yeah. We had a similar experience as well. And, um, it really, it sort of led us to say, again, in the business world, I, I know uh, you, you really try to vet your resources and at the height of the project that I've been doing these 15 years, I had 42 different people working for me from across the country. Some of whom I've never seen in my life. I I, re, I did their annual appraisal, for, you know, for multiple years and five mm-hmm. of them, I couldn't tell you what they look like. Mm-hmm. They we're all virtual. And, and I, I, I don't know them, but, I really, really vetted all of them. They had it was, it's a, a business teaching uh, business management teaching uh, or, um, project. So I had all of them teach back to me, and so I, you know I interviewed them as as people on the phone. I interviewed them in person as as people, but then I really you know wanted to see them do their thing in the in the business model that they were going to be doing for me. To try to vet multiple multiple ways. And, in, and as we got started in film, I think we took the tack of, well, we don't know anything. This is new for us. So if anybody's been in the business before already, they are so much better than we are. Therefore, we should hire them. No, you know, no interview beyond that really much. No, no vetting of, of references. No really looking at their, their, their reel of work. Um, and then that led to some mistakes. We learned very quickly that, that you know, we know a little bit more than, than we think we do. And we definitely, you know, we work a certain way. And so we really need to vet them for that. Uh, We need to, we really need to check resources. So if if we're meeting somebody and and they have sort of their interview personality, but if you go to actually check their, their, the resources, the references and people that work with them and you find out that's not really who they are, um, that, that's, you know, that can set up some red flags very quickly. Been better at that in, in normal business world. I didn't do so well in that as we got started into film. So probably biggest lesson learned from first feature is you really got to run it, you know, even more so as a business
0: than we did. Yeah, it's a great, great piece of advice. And I want to talk a little bit about Captive now, because you guys did run a Kickstarter campaign to raise money for that project. And I think a lot of filmmakers have the same idea in mind. And there are a few different places you can do it. I think Seed and Spark would be, um, by, you know, run by Emily Best. I think she would that'd be another place you potentially could go. Uh, I'm curious, how was that fundraising method for you? Um, what would you uh, say are the advantages and, and maybe potential pitfalls of doing a Kickstarter campaign to generate sort of financing funds for your, for your film?
1: I if you ask Cody and I, uh, actually I know for sure. If you ask Cody and I at this point, our, our number one advice is you have, if you have any choice in the world, don't ever do it. Um, <laughs> it is uh it's miserable experience well so we we um we hired a coach who ran a successful campaign for someone i know on creating a cd and who had also done some film projects in the past as well so so we had a coach without the coach i think we would have um done some things better but but a lot of things not not nearly as well now we happened to kick off in march which was right at the start of of COVID hitting so, again, we could not have picked a worse time to try to go after money and asking, really, who you're asking are, are your friends and family. Um, we got very little money, I will say, from anyone we didn't already know. No matter what links or, or requests put out, um, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't much that came in from people that, that we didn't know. And, and so you're really sort of attacking people that you, you like and you hope still like you afterwards to give you money. And if you know that they have some and they don't give it to you, <laughs> it can <it> lead <laughs> to some, some, some bad feelings with people that you formerly were good friends with. And in the interim, you have every day for a month you know, mm. flooded your social media with nothing but requests for, for somebody giving you money. And so you've annoyed everyone that you've ever met um, besides. And um, in the midst of COVID, in addition to that, um, you know, it was a struggle. Now we did just hit our goal, um, but it's expensive. You have to come up with perks. You have to, um, you know, really, really, really go after social media hard. If that's not your thing, you're going to need to hire somebody to do it. Or you're going to have to do it, um, you know, multiple times a day on multiple platforms for 30 days straight, plus probably 10-15 days going into it you can't just sort of show up one day with a film and say, hi, give me money. You know, you need to reach out to all the communities that the film might be applicable to beforehand for at least a month or two. So that they sort of get to know who you are. So by the time you come asking for money, they, they at least know your name. Mm -hmm. And so it's a multiple month project. They'll say at the end of the day, well, we, we met our fundraising goal, which was, was $30,000, um, yeah, we spent a good amount of money, also just running the campaign itself. Plus, took a whole month of time away from not making our film. And we probably could have gotten equal amounts of money just by going after different resources of, of funding without doing that at all, and saved ourselves a lot of time and saved our friends and family a lot of uh, angst.
0: Very good. Very good. And I appreciate the honesty on that and, and just the uh, directness of that response. Uh, that That's great. And I think a lot of people will derive a ton of value from that answer. Uh, you talked about uh, switching directors for captive. Uh, did Alejandro Montoya Marin end up being the director?
1: No, he started out as the director. Um and he told us early on and we knew from his work early on that, that he was mostly in, in a comedy space, really, really good director, um, but has only written and directed his things. And, and mostly, even if it has some, some, some gravitas to it, mostly a, very much a comedy space and very much a retro space. He, he loves 80s, 90s kinds of things. And he had talked about you know, maybe wanting to do that, making sort of making a Lost Boy spoof comedy retro piece. And we're like, mm, no, this is you know serious horror and contemporary." And um, I think we sort of always never really found our groove in finding that, that that space in between those two. I said he wanted to continue to to change the writing and and more into his comfort zone space, and the writer had written it for a different purpose, and we selected it for a different purpose. And so shortly before we, we started filming, uh, we decided to to part ways for, for creative differences on on that space. Uh, and then we went with a, a director that we'd actually been working with for the past year on uh, a different film um, uh, named uh, Greg Simon out, out of L.A. And, and Greg uh, very kindly stepped in sort of to, sort of last minute and, 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 and saved the day and just did an awesome job in, in making the film that, that we envisioned it to be.
0: And so when you talked to Greg, what was your number one requirement in terms of, what he brought to the table in order for him to get the work.
1: So, so we, we had been talking to him already about doing a horror film for us next year for much of the last year. So we had been developing the script with he and, and a different writer. And so we were already comfortable in the way that we worked in the way that we thought about script development and character development and, and project management. And so we we had known him, um, but he had already done probably about a hundred episodes of TV shows um, swamp Thing, and and, and other, other things that were in the horror space already, Hemlock Grove. And and so we were able to see his work and and know what he could bring, and it was amazing. Our concern with Greg is that that he was sort of beyond our, our budget reach. Mm-hmm. And so um, we actually called him when, when we decided uh, that Alejandro wouldn't be the director and say, hey, we know we can't afford you, but... Is there anyone sort of coming up like you that you know of that maybe you could recommend? He's like, yeah, send me the script. And it's sort of in the midst of COVID where no one was working. He's like, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> um, we're like, fantastic. Yeah, obviously, we, we know you. You're fantastic. You, you're going to elevate this project well beyond anything that we could do on our own. And uh, we're like, you know, if you're willing to do that, you know, you're, you're hired. I love and that. So, so, we had, so we had, we had a, you know, a day of phone calls with, with he and, and, and concepts and set him the script and talked about what we envisioned for it and what he saw in it. And then maybe where we could take it from what was on the page then to what we might film. Uh, we're hundred percent on board together. And so, so, uh, on, on, on,
0: he came. You've produced at this point, a drama, a horror, and a comedy. So, uh, I know you talked about checking the boxes, but I'm curious: which do you uh, you prefer? Which genre do you prefer to work in? You know, what's your favorite?
1: Uh, for me, it's probably psychological thriller. Um, I really like I like to think through through a, a film, and I sort of like to not know necessarily what, what's coming. And so you know, well, there'll be twists and turns, but you don't quite know exactly what they are. Um, that's that's my my favorite space. So. I, I honestly, I, I like them all. I, I like to be entertained. Same thing if I, if I go back to the theater world. You know, I'll, I, there's, there's times I'm in a mood to see a drama and times I'm in a mood to see a comedy and times I'm in you know for a musical. And so film would be the same for me. Right now, I think while the world, at least for me, has been in a bit of angst this, this past year, if not the past couple of years, um, you know, I'm sort of looking for a little bit lighter entertainment. But I also wanted to, to to think my way through. Uh, I just finished watching Queen's Gambit um, the last week or so. And, you know, it was sort of chess and, and definitely a lot of psychological stuff going on in that and personal growth. I, I really like to, if I, if I pick a project to direct, I really want there to be something where, where I'm going to learn something, either about me or about the world, but so will others.
0: Yeah, I love the Queen's Gambit. I think it's a, a masterclass by Scott Frank and uh, his his writing and and vision. Uh, what a, what a wonderful piece of content and very different uh, on paper. Yeah. You would not guess that to be a winner uh, with that cast and that subject matter, but you got a writer like that and and um, a team at Netflix to put together, and, and you have a, a in, instant classic, as they say. Uh, me and you have this thing in common where. Poltergeist was one of our favorite films in horror <laughs> <laughs> uh, of all time. Uh, I understand it's your favorite horror film. I think Cody's is The Conjuring, but we'll get to that maybe a little later. For you, <laughs> f- for you, uh, what did the, what did Poltergeist get right that a lot of horror films just don't?
1: I think in general, for me, it has to start with something where. The 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 scariest part of it is maybe something that we don't fully know. Um, that we don't see. So we have sort of creepy happenings, but we don't necessarily necessarily see the killer per se. Um, in this case, obviously we've got we've got you know some some children in it, we've got some adults in it, we've got some spooky things in it. We're not quite entirely sure what's what's happening until we have a whole exorcism and, and again, parapsychologists, we definitely get into all kinds of, of psychological things as well. in, in that, um, and my son was growing up and we, we saw the whole, the Saw series, which is something you should probably never take a child to, but sort of the opposite of that, where it's just, this is blood and guts and horror. I come back more to, you know, more to a silence of the lambs or, or conjuring or, or poltergeist or something where, again, um, I'm not necessarily going to know immediately what, what my villain is. I don't see it. It's not a Jason. It's not a Freddy.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. And I I loved Freddy too. Freddy was big for me, but I think it was a big part of it was that uh, the age in which I saw it, I was really young. And, you know, the one thing, the one place you find peace and solace is when you go to sleep. And, you know, Freddy attacked sleep. So that <laughs> was immediately impactful for me. But also Poltergeist did that. Poltergeist was basically this this almost insomnia insomniatic sort of fantasy in a way, because you're up late at night back when TV used to go off right. uh, and you just looked into that sort of fuzzy screen. But, you know, I asked the question because to your point earlier, I think a lot of uh, independent filmmakers are going to, to make a horror film because of the odds of making the money back. And so it's kind of good to know from from your perspective, you know what makes a horror film work and and what doesn't. Uh, as you go into the the storytelling, I do want to jump back to the financing piece uh, in the in just a moment. But before, while we're on it, uh, you mentioned the Queen's Gambit. We know that was a streaming deal, seven episodes on Netflix. Uh, you talked about COVID a few times. How has the current landscape of the industry? with this move towards streaming, maybe a permanent move towards streaming or just a more impactful move towards streaming if theaters open back up. How has that impacted your, your production goals and, and actions, behaviors, decisions, etc.?
1: Uh, from big immediate picture, the, the film we were actually talking with Greg Simon about directing next year was going to be a much bigger budget project. And we've actually put that one on hold because we weren't entirely sure you know, right now when theaters might be coming back. Um, right. Certainly, there's news in the last couple of weeks that that there might be some some uh, you know some some relief and and, and some um, COVID uh, guys COVID relief and and so maybe theaters will come back a little bit sooner than 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 we were thinking a month ago even but like Broadway right now is closed through Memorial Day and so our thought was that theaters at best are going to open maybe next summer next fall. And then even who's going to be really brave enough to go. Some people will, some people won't. So maybe right now, theaters are not really on the horizon for the next year for certain. Um, like if we get through the holidays right now, there's another big COVID outbreak. You know, will that delay everything again? So we sort of changed from doing a bigger budget film that would only make its money back if it went to theaters, to saying, Let, let's, let's stay in this lower budget space again. Uh, because the, the landscape of, of the film industry is, is constantly changing. That was probably another big learning curve for me. It was definitely another big learning curve for me. Again, as, as, a, as a film attendee, I went to theaters to, to watch them. And then occasionally, if I was just home and, and looking to kill time, I would watch something online. But by and large, I saw most of my things in movie theater. Well, that's not necessarily true anymore. Um, I think last year's films were something like 48% went straight online. 40-some percent went to theaters, and some went straight to bins at Walmart. But um, it was it was probably more went to to, to um, online than went to theaters. And most of what, what went to theaters were big blockbuster things and big name things and studio things, much more so than the indie films. The indie film space had sort of been online. And while even a couple of years ago, Netflix and other things were buying a lot of that, now they're making a lot of that instead. So there was a little bit of time where that didn't really look like that was the viable space anymore. But then more and more online sites came up, like for, for horror films, there's shutter and there's other places where things can show. And so it, the, the whole landscape was constantly, constantly being reinvented. And things like like Scorsese's Irishman that came out, I think last year maybe, mm-hmm. went to the theaters for like a week, right? and then it was online. Right. And remember then there's an article of sort of all the major studio heads thinking, you know, what they were thinking is that maybe from now on, everything will just show up everywhere at once. And people will just go to whatever medium they prefer. So instead of going to a long theatrical release and then going to stream, it, it may show up everywhere at once. You just pick what you want and how you want to see it. And so while this industry has been alive forever, it's still the Wild West. There's there's not a playbook that you can get that's current that says here's how you would have the most likely way to succeed.
0: Yeah, I want to dive into that a little bit too it with is, you.
1: It is literally reinvent the the decision you know each and every day, week, month. And that's so, right. while well, well, we wrote a business plan for five years as one's supposed to do, and we we've rewritten it you know every couple of months since then as as COVID hit and as as things hit. But now that being said. Uh, somebody told us recently, again, from our friend from, from one of the studios in, in LA, said for the next 18 months, anything that's made is likely, if it's good, going to sell for more than it would have, you know, eight months ago, because most people have watched what they want to watch at home now, and nothing has been made. And so the, the, the services are looking for new content. And when theaters do open, they're looking for new content and there isn't any new content. So anything right now that gets made probably has a better chance for success.
0: Yeah, and I'd also say if you are right on the cusp of being sold, but but sort of were wedged out by by bigger productions, uh, you know, you have a chance to call your distributor and have them, you know, make that phone call to Hulu or Amazon or Apple or Netflix again and say hey, will you buy this film uh, now that you've run out of good things to show?
1: Right. So, so that, that's also changed the landscape, right? So they said, you know, all right, so if we thought it was going to be viably, likely sell for X number of dollars and the likely medium for that would be such and such, that's that's
0: all changing by, by the week right now again. That's right. Uh, outside of not using Kickstarter, what advice do you have for, for independent creatives in film regarding the financing and production of independent films?
1: So lesson number 912 on this particular um, session that we learned um, the hard way was that we thought by doing something low budget, and low budget for, for SAG anyway right now is anything under $300,000. Mm-hmm. So so anything, anything under that, we thought, well, if we do something for that, that's being safe and that's being smart. And then we went to get started. Once we'd picked the script and we'd hired the people, and we're ready to get going, and we're looking for final financing. Uh, if you if you do a, a you know a union project, you have to use a union payroll service uh, to to uh, to, for, to to pay everybody. And so um, a couple of them, the couple of the major ones, wouldn't touch us if the film budget was under a million dollar, and there wasn't enough money for them to to make to to take on our 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 project. Well, there were only a couple companies to choose from and two-thirds of those wouldn't talk to us because of the size of our budget. Like, oh, that wasn't anything that, that we thought. And then the same thing, um, part of budget, part of financing, you know, films is the tax incentive monies within whatever state you're going to film. And so what you you hope to get is, is something, and we filmed in, in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, it's 25 percent there of any dollars you spend on New Mexico resources you get back Mm -hmm. and so you count on some of that as as your budget money and you look then for people to sort of pre-fund you on that again under a million dollars nobody would do that the loan was so small and we thought the loan being so small meant it was so safe everyone would fund us it turned out the other way the loan was so small there wasn't enough money for them to make they wouldn't fund us and so, oddly, now uh, again, we're sort of changing. We're saying we are going to do a low-budget film again next year, but we had abandoned that and said um, we wouldn't make anything under a million dollars now, because as soon as you do that, you cut off a lot of
0: funding resources. That's that's right. And we've had a lot of conversations and consultation with producers and, and directors, filmmakers, about uh, that very concept, which is, you know, the the first thing that um, indie filmmaker or producer will pitch to you is, well, the budget's really low, so we'll make our money back sooner. And that's one of the, um, I don't think it's an intentional lie, but it's one of the things if you're investing, if you're looking at film from that lens, that is not a viable uh, path to profitability. Right. And and you should, you should correct those filmmakers, or if you think they're lying intentionally, obviously run the other direction. But but the fact of the matter is is we see a film that, that's getting made for five hundred thousand. We say why not make that for two point five? Right. Because there's a lot of talented filmmakers that can make a film for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and make it look like it was made for one point five. Okay. So then what if you made it for seven fifty or for one point five or two and then make it look like it was made for ten? Right, and then and then you can go act. You could actually walk into a bank and and based on your cast attachments, actually get a, a loan. Uh, so well, that's it. yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, that's the big deal. And then the other part, obviously, is all the resources you're coming from, coming from theater. I'll say the the biggest difference I find from theater to to film. They're both collaborative art forms for sure. But as a director in theater, I felt I have a lot more say in what the audience is going to experience than I do in film. Um, you know, the, the technicians are are really. You know, obviously very, very, very heavily involved, but so is an editor, and so, so are a lot of various people. Um, so what we see in the theater, when I'm looking at the stage, is the same thing the audience is going to see. When I'm in a room filming something, that is not what the audience is going to see. <laughs> They're going to see what the camera sees, which is a micro, you know, microcosm of what I can take in visually myself. And so you, you're watching the monitor and even that, but even with that, you know, between the multiple cuts and the multiple takes and the multiple angles, um, in the multiple shots, you know, it could turn out to be a whole bunch of different things that the actor doesn't have full control over, that the director doesn't have full control over. And so you're, you're in a very collaborative art form. But that means that they're also sort of like theater. They're, there's community theater level and there's small professional theater and then there's Broadway and everything in between. And in low budget, you're going to get, at least so far our experience is you're going to get um, the technical resources that are, are sort of the theater equivalent of community theater. And and so they're, they're not going to be particularly skilled. And if, 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 in our case, we're somewhat new to the, the industry as well, um, we don't have the skills to help them have the skills. Mm. And so by going up in budget, you're also going up dramatically in skill set of the people that are necessary to help you make the product quality that you were just talking about. It, it's, it's not going to happen by chance. It's, you know, and there's too many hands in it to not have everybody be really good. And, yeah. and so by going up in budget, you know, one, you're probably going to get bigger name actors, you're going to have better saleability, you're going to have an easier time getting financing, but you're also on the back end, the technical crew side, going to have a dramatically different experience and better experience.
0: Yeah, you, you, you nailed it. Uh, you, you mentioned that theater background. We haven't talked a lot about it today. But uh, it it is just a wonderful experience learning how to collaborate and uh, theater acting and that whole experience. And it's a whole lot of fun. It's a different it's collaborative. film is collaborative, but theater's collaborative in my experience, like in a whole different way, with a whole different type of richness, not better or worse, just different. So I'm curious um, with you being two feet in with Paul and Path uh, entertainment. Is theater in the rearview now?
1: I think so, for the most part, um, and mostly for me, it's because of, of money. Um, you know, even if you're doing you know theater in New York, you're, you're, unless you're a big name, you're just not making much money compared to the cost of living. Um, and, and so, while while I love it, and it was it was great fun, and it would probably always be a part of me, and I would love to come back to it someday. Right now, it just isn't something that I could ever leave a day job for. Yeah. Perfectly and and so, you know, film, film, you know, it, it's funny if I did a community theater film and I said $25,000 budget, that would be really great. And we're talking about, you know, for, well, film, we shouldn't do anything for under a million. And I'm like, well, $25,000, you know, I can pay for myself in some good years, a million, not so much. So, um, you know, these numbers are a little scary to think about from from a, a production side and saying, OK, we're going to spend how much and and. And and we're going to, we're
0: going to make that back. That's, that's okay. Right. Right. And I know you've mentioned your favorite horror film up to this point. You've mentioned your favorite genre of film up to this point. I think your favorite singer is Callum Scott. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's an obscure reference for most people, (laughs) roughly. (laughs) Uh, But I'm curious what, which creatives do you most admire and want to emulate and what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint that makes their work stand apart?
1: Um, I guess you know for, for me I, I, I come at it um, from from you know mostly from seeing people on stage or on, on screen and so I, I first admired actors as as the people I, I probably probably most admired. I mean, if I go back to, to like you know from kidland on, I thought Lucille Ball was probably the greatest comedian I've ever seen. She's um, on, on a on a TV series. Um, but then I, I learned from from working with people. In, in that space, once I got into a theater space where I was working with Broadway people, I really wanted people who were smart about the business as well. And I, was, I think this follows back to my, my default, but they really know what makes something successful or not, and they'll fight for it. I think you, you'll get two sorts of people in, in the actor world, those that will do anything the director says, because that's what they're hard to do. And those are going to fight for their integrity of how they feel something should, should happen. And they'll give in if, if you know at a certain point, but They'll sort of, they'll sort of at least speak up. And so I, I, sort of admire that now the, the most from, from theater land for me, um, probably the two people I think of the most are Patty Lapone and, and Faith Prince that I, I, you know, Faith, especially I've had a chance to work with several times and both Tony award winners, um, one for Evita, one for Guys and Dolls. Um, and they've, they've done plenty of, of, uh, television things. You know, Faith did Spin City, um, Patty had Life Goes On, um, so I, I, I love somebody who comes at it from, from a business intelligence perspective. Mm-hmm. Now from, from from since then, and now looking more for, for film and more looking at it from a creative spot, for whatever reason, I, again, sort of against psychological thriller, I really respond to Darren Aronofsky.
0: Oh, that's my favorite.
1: The biggest stuff is, is, is enormously interesting. I don't necessarily always know what's going on, but it's something I'm willing to watch multiple times to try to figure it out and get more and more every single time. From from a writer, I really like Aaron Sorkin. I think his things are just really, really smart. And uh, the the show, The Boys, I forget if that's Amazon or Netflix, wherever that's running right now. But I I, we'll we'll watch that and and just guffaw at some of the the lines in that. They're they're so intelligent, and like you want to keep pausing and stop and write it down because it's it's so good.
0: Yeah, Aaron Sorkin is a podcast. Favorite uh, when we ask that question, uh, no one says Darren Aronofsky. So I'm so thankful that you said it because he is my favorite uh, director, and I'm such a, a masochist, I suppose that that I'm the only person that will sit down and watch Requiem for a Dream for pleasure, yeah. and uh, and Pie and and Mother, but uh, I think they're great works of art, and, and I'm not ashamed of it. And with I Love Lucy. A uh, fun fact about me, I have the entire series on VHS,
1: <laughs> <Hysterical>.
0: <laughs> which ages me a little bit, but that's that's what they sold it on. So I keep a VCR around just for, just for moments um, like that. Y- you've had this rich, extensive career. Uh, it spans all over the place into these areas that have a warm place in my heart, like fashion and business, film and theater what are the two best pieces of advice you've received so far in your career and who did they come from?
1: Mm, I, so I, I, um, I, I sort of have a, a life mentor. Um, so uh, there was a, once upon a time, Bette Midler had a huge hit song, The Rose, in a film called The Rose. Uh, the woman who wrote that song, Amanda McBroom, I had a chance to, to meet and work for several times. She um, wrote a musical and I had the chance to direct it. And in that one, uh, it's sort of a, a story of somebody at, at 14 and 16 years old sort of plotting out their life as to the, the way that it, it should go. And, and, you know, and she, she dreamed, in the, in the character in the show, at, at age 40, she was to be in a certain place in life. And I was married and have 2.3 kids and a house and a job and a white picket fence. And in the show, uh, it's her 40th birthday. And she has every one of those things and she's miserable. And the show itself is looking back at that journey Then, at each time that there was a fork in the road, she, the 40 year old is watching the 14 and 16 and 20 and 30 year old uh, throughout the show. Each time there's a fork in the road to see what that fork was and why she made the choice that she, she, she did to get her to where she is and, and why she's not happy there. And so overall, I think I grew up with that same mentality and I remember, you know, I, I have a, 28-year-old son now as well. And I, anyway, I did the same thing to him as, as probably my parents did to me and probably many parents do, which is you know, when, when the kid is like three years old and eight years old, you're asking them what they want to be when they grow up, like they have any clue. And then we put in their mind that they're supposed to sort of map this journey out as, as to what they're there to be and, and what success would mean. And, and money and finance and houses and cars are success. I and mean, if you don't have those things, you don't have it. And, and that probably couldn't be farther from my, my reality now. And so from from working with Amanda on that show, it really was what what is what is happy and what is the, the, the path and road uh, that, that one would take. And I don't remember if it's a Joseph Campbell quote or exactly what it is, but sort of like if you can look ahead and see your whole path, you're not on your path. Hmm. You're on someone else's. Your, your path is built one step at a time and that, that's as far as your path goes. Um, and so Cody and I named our company from, a, from that lesson, actually. Uh, there was a Navajo myth, Joseph Campbell, oddly enough, again, a Navajo myth that, that said that if, if in your mind the things that you really want to be doing manifest into the, the real world, and that is what you're doing, you're on the, the Navajo term, the pollen path. The, the, that, is, that is where you're meant to be. And, and if you're on that pollen path, you will attract other like-minded people who, who bring you comfort and joy and success as, as you, how you choose to define it. Um, but if you don't, if you're not in that and you're trying to force something, you're going to keep ending up in these places where you're, you got where you meant to go and you're not happy there. And people around you are not people who make you happy there. And so we named our company pollen path entertainment specifically for this purpose. It is constantly really, really think about what is, what is success to us? What is happy to us? What is common comfort to us? And it's, it's, you know, much beyond just, just monetary value of a bank account, but, you know, the human value. And I said, I like things that really teach something about life. And I learned, everyone involved learned, And how do we reach community? And, and how do we help the world be whatever our version of, of a better world is? And, it, and if we can do that, then, then that's, that's, that's the direction that we should always be heading. And it will always change. I, I have a tattoo on, on my arm that's a paper airplane. Because I same thing, you know, I, I wrote you know business plans, and you look down the road of all these years, and I don't think I've ever written a five year business plan that we actually did all five years of. <laughs> On to the second year, that was amazing, and so the paper airplane represented to me that you throw it and you never really know where it's going.
0: Sometimes yeah. it yeah.
1: flies really far, and sometimes it crashes immediately, and sometimes it goes straight and left and right. And you never know. But if you just run your life that way and just go with wherever it goes, because that's the path you're supposed to take that time and be happy with that. Don't, don't, don't try to plan the whole future. Just take the next step.
0: Beautifully said, Tom. And uh, thank you so much for that. Great pieces of advice for sure. And I think that's a good place for us to, to stop. Um, Tell everybody where they can find you on social media, on the internet and where they might see some of your work. So most
1: of it will be found on Pollen Path Entertainment and pollen, sort of like the 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 bee, you know, and and, and uh, thing that make everybody uh, sneeze. So Pollen P O L L E N Path P A T H Entertainment dot com. So there'll be a Pollen Path Facebook page and Instagram page and and a website. Uh, they'll find links to to all of the, the short films that we did there. And they're all actually just about finishing their their festival run, so pretty soon we'll make the films all available for public as well. Uh, the first one, Nephilim, which is meant to be a feature film someday, is on one site right now, occultorama.com. Um, there, but then Captive is the, the horror film, It's a vampire horror film that that we just uh, filmed. Uh, if anybody uh, was a fan of the Robs Z- or knows of at least the, the Rob Zombie remakes of Halloween, um, the star of those, Scout Taylor Compton is the star of our film and so uh, it's her her latest horror film it's a vampire horror film so there is a captive the film.com website instagram page and facebook page as well so right now it is in post-production it's actually starting editing right now so probably about three months from now or so it will be done and then uh, hopefully sometime next year it will be out but people would follow the, the path of that along the way on that website and then whatever it is that we do choose to do next year, that is not what we were planning to choose to do next year, will show up on the Pollen Pad website as soon as we, we pick that. I mentioned earlier you had an interview a couple weeks ago of uh, someone, Brandon Rinas, a writer that we really love. Mm-hmm. He's cool. just submitted three scripts to us uh, to consider. So we'll, we'll hopefully um, pick one of those and producing a, a
0: Brandon Rinas film next year. I love it. It's a very small world, but it's a world full of creative people, and that's a world that uh, I think me and you both want to live in. And, uh, well, I'll end with this. Uh, I don't think it's any secret to this audience that my favorite movie, uh, arguably of all time is the princess bride. And there's a scene in the princess bride where, uh, uh, Wesley or the man in black, uh, is sword fighting and we hear the line, uh, from Inigo Montoya. Uh, I know something you don't know. And Wesley says, uh, what's that? And he says, I'm not left handed. And I don't know if you recall that scene or not, but I happen to know that you were a division one tennis uh, player and you happen to be ambidextrous. Did you ever get in a match where you switched hands on someone?
1: (laughs) I did. I did. There's times the ball I, I, I can probably play except for serve. I can play tennis about the same left or right handed. It doesn't much matter. And, and oddly in tennis, probably the biggest advantage that one has between either hand is a left-handed serve, and that's the one thing I can't do. I can serve right-handed. I can do all the other strokes either hand. I can't serve left-handed. But it does mean sometimes the ball just gets too far out to the left, and, and you know trying to reach you with a backhand is just awkward, and you're not going to get there. And so every once in a while, I, I will switch hands and have an extra two feet of reach. That, that just drives people crazy if, if, I, if I do it. but. It is, it is
0: a nice advantage to have. I love that. I love that. The real life uh, sword fighter here, Tom Staniger. <laughs> <Tom> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Tom. This has been a blast. I wish you the best of luck in everything that you and Cody are trying to accomplish and do. Please do stay in touch and uh, take care out there.
1: Thank you so very much for having me. This has been a great time. I really enjoyed
0: it. The hour just flew by. <laughs> Likewise. And hopefully we'll have a round two soon. Sounds great. All right, brother. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It, Banzai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Banzai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.banzai.film and click on Book Us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better. Be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.